All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in. And today I am back with a fan favorite, uh, Mr. Lyle McDonald. Uh, Lyle, how are you? Oh, fine. You know, watching watching the world burn, just like the rest of us. So, same old thing. Actually, random thing I wanted to say. Uh, are you familiar with kind of the any of the big names in the world of soccer? Not if I can avoid it. Um, I mean, like, I'm sorry, a very American attitude. You know, we we sort of think soccer is is ridiculous, and I'm I'm not exempt from that. Like, I know this is one that's married to the Spice Girl. I know, like, Cristiano Ronaldo. Like, unless they're like probably famous for something else. Probably not. Okay, so uh, what I wanted to say is uh, maybe some of the listeners that are European will agree with me or disagree. So there is this coach in soccer called Jose Mourinho. Okay. He's one of the most famous coaches uh, of all time, pretty much. Oh, okay. And I and I uh, made this um, realization some time ago that you're basically the Jose Mourinho of the fitness industry. <laughs> in that, um, so that guy is. Everybody admires him, but uh, people people kind of have this love or hate relationship with him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like some people think he is the goat. Some people say he's an asshole. And yeah, uh, he's a nice person, but like if you get him in the wrong moment, you will have a hard time. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, the commenters can let me know if they agree with me. Okay, I'll take it. Anyway, so um, the first thing I wanted to ask you actually is uh, if I'm correct, you started doing some of these um, online consultations for people where you can talk to you for, I don't know how long on Skype or whatever. Is that correct? Yeah, after uh, much uh, debate and trying to avoid it, yeah, I am doing just single consults. Like I'm not doing online coaching or month-to-month stuff or or anything like that because I, I don't have the patience right now. Um, so yeah, it's just like for individual consults, people have issues or want to talk or hell, just pay if you want to just, you know, curse me out for an hour. I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And so and, and what I was going to ask about that is, um, I'm curious, did you have any kind of surprises or dominant experience with people with the problems that they come to you with or just something interesting that you observed in general? Um, it's been, you know, a little bit of a mix. Some of them were, you know, I, I hate to say standard consults because that seems like really dismissive to when people, you know, some of it is people looked and kind of optimized the program that they are on. And, and I'll be honest, a lot of the people who've who've wanted consults with me, um, really didn't need any help. You know, I looked at what they had drawn up on their own. I think they just wanted kind of confirmation. I had a, I had a couple of recent ones. You know, I don't like to share too much too much personal information. One that involved um, actually a genetic sleep disorder combined with shift work. And that is not really within my wheelhouse, but it, it certainly prompted me to do some research. Um, another one was a similar sort of night eating issue that's very genetically driven and obviously makes dieting very, very difficult. Um, did one actually with someone I've known for quite some time that had to do with, you know, uh, nootropics for dementia, which is very much not within my wheelhouse. It's not something I've ever really paid a lot of attention to. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's been kind of a mixture, um, I, I got one very strange request that I actually uh, didn't didn't take, which basically they wanted someone in the field already, like someone who you know is is uh, fairly high standing in the field that wanted to talk to me about like polyunsaturated fatty acids, and I'm like I I don't need to explain this for an hour, so I sent him a bunch of links and was like yeah you don't you don't need my help on this one, um, so yeah it's just been kind of kind of a mixture. Um, 
But between, you know, like I said again, fairly, you know, typical, can you look at my diet, training, help me set this up for whatever goal, and uh, then a, a few very more unique ones um, that were definitely forced me to do some homework, which I don't mind. Cool, cool, interesting. So um, today uh, we have a couple of topics that I would like to discuss, and the first thing is something that you're very well known for, and I know you did a whole bunch of interviews and podcasts on this, but that's the topic of refeeds and uh, diet breaks, uh, because recently I had some podcasts uh, on my channel which were kind of discussing like, well, are they really that beneficial as we once thought? And then, of course, people commented like, like I, I, I wish I uh, heard Lyle McDonald's commentary on that. So now we have the chance. So Lyle, as of 2020, uh, where do you stand on refeeds and diet breaks? Probably somewhere in the middle, you know, sort of for, for history. Like I didn't invent any of these concepts. And for any listeners, not, not clear, you know, a refeed, and we'll, I think we'll address the semantics of this later, it was traditionally considered a day uh, where carbohydrates were increased very greatly, either to maintenance levels or even slightly above, depending on the conditions. The goals were refill muscle glycogen, hopefully raise leptin levels, hopefully you know, decrease some of the metabolic adaptations to dieting. Uh, the full diet break concept was based on an early study by Wing. Uh, basically, the idea is that you take anywhere from 7 to 14 days uh, during the diet to eat at maintenance. Again, a couple of goals. Meta, in, in my primary focus years ago was really on the, the metabolic aspects, and I think there are other important issues. The idea being that by sort of stabilizing the new body weight, could reverse some of the metabolic adaptations, and when you returned to dieting, that it would improve your results, right? Rather than you, you coming from this position where your body had been constantly fighting back, you're sort of starting from a little bit better place, on top of other benefits. You know, for athletes, if they were losing performance, if they were losing muscle, having those two weeks at maintenance calories allowed them to uh, regain that. They could raise their training volume a little bit, assuming they cut it. They were able to adapt, you know. Uh, that, so that was sort of a, a benefit in that sense for even the general dieter. And this could be an entirely separate podcast. Let's face it, fat loss is the easy part. Long-term maintenance is the difficult part. And among other things that I think the full diet break can accomplish in that situation is giving people an opportunity to practice maintenance, which is often much more difficult. Uh, separate topic, I think you want to focus on the metabolic stuff for at least the time being. So, you know, when I first wrote about this, this was 2004, and this was in sort of the, the early leptin days at least when, when they were really starting to put a lot of that physiology together. And, you know, I was very excited about it. I was much younger. And in hindsight, I would probably look back on, on at least some of what I wrote or some of the enthusiasm I wrote about it in a much more tempered way. Um, you know, if, if nothing else, based on what we know now, you know, I'd originally proposed uh, a five-hour refeed, a very short period of high calories, and I can say with really no hesitance that uh, from a metabolic standpoint, that won't accomplish anything, right? It, it will refill muscle glycogen, gives your body a little bit of a break, but as far as having any meaningful impact hormonally or a metabolic rate or the, like I can say absolutely without exception that that will not do anything. So I would pretty much, you know, eliminate even that possibility from the lexicon. Other than, again, you know, muscle glycogen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I also proposed, you know, at the time, 24-hour uh, refeeds, 48-hour refeeds. 
And again, I was looking at, you know, how quickly does do leptin levels uh, increase relative cat, and we know that they decrease very quickly when you diet and they go up very quickly when you overfeed. We also know that there is a delay in when things like appetite, energy expenditure start to adapt, right? So it's not like there's an immediate effect. I mean, fine, thermic effect of food, maybe move around more, people get, you know, the carbo sweats, but big picture. Um, you know, and one thing I wrote many years later, I think is probably part of my ultimate diet too, you know, as I thought about it. Okay, when you start dieting, leptin levels drop very quickly, like 50% within a week. And we know that about day three or four, it's when you start to see, you know, some of the adaptations. Clearly there's a lag. It then made logical sense to me that the lag probably works in the opposite direction, right? And we can get up our butts with evolutionary theory and go, okay, look, you're a human. If there's one day of no food, eh, it's no big deal, right? Your body doesn't quote unquote know anything. Two days, eh, three days, and okay, by day four, maybe there's a problem. And I think that partially explains, you know, same thing when you're starving or you're dieting. And dieting is just starvation on a sh longer time frame. So you've been on low calories. Suddenly, whatever, again, think of Og the Neanderthal or Pale, whatever. Suddenly he finds a ton of food. Great, food's back. Well, for one day, maybe just a one-time thing. Two days, maybe two-day thing. By day three or four, maybe that suggests that food availability has increased. So I think in a conceptual sense, that's probably the lag time. So then we get into the question, well, will a one-day refeed accomplish anything? Yes, it'll raise leptin, there's no debate. Is that enough to reverse any signal meaningfully? What about a two-day refeed? At what point do, do calories, how, how long do calories have to be up before any of this reverses? And I think that gets into a stunning number of other issues. I think, and, and one time, I, I think I've got my whiteboard around here somewhere. One day, just in a fit of insanity, this is many years ago, I was like, I decided I was going to math it out, right? Because I do think that the size of the calorie deficit does play a role here in terms of how often or how big or how frequently the refeeds have to occur. There's also probably a sex-based difference, which we might have time to get into and might not, because women's bodies do adapt a little bit differently than men's. And basically, I sort of mathed it out based on net calorie deficits and whatever assumptions I was making based on, okay, how often do you need to refeed on a small calorie deficit? 10% below maintenance. What about moderate? 20%. What about heavy? And honestly, I came up with about what I wrote in that first book, um, which, you know, was probably as much guessing and estimations as it was anything else. But, but we really don't have those answers. And that's always been sort of one of the debates. Well, there's, I guess there's two issues. One, do we have data showing that this matters? Does it actually increase energy expenditure? Does it reverse any of the adaptations meaningfully? And I know there's been some more work on that now. I don't know how much is on the shorter refeeds. Um, I remember somebody I knew doing a study because we he consulted me on how to set it up. Bill Campbell did one recently. Yeah, um, right, yeah, that looked at energy expenditure and lean body mass. And I listened to part of the, the podcast you did with um, with Dave Mangione and uh, just let it go. Just let that joke fall. Just let that joke land. Um, just nobody will get it except me, and that's fine. I didn't get it. Can you explain? <laughs> there, so there is an old, I want to say, 80s American musician who played trumpet named Chuck Mangione. He's got a really famous acoustic song 
Cartoon King of the Hill, which you're probably not familiar with either, did a riff on it. And because I like running jokes because I'm ridiculous, I for a while I couldn't get Dave McConey's name right in my head. So I just started calling him Dave Mangione because oh. I think I'm hilarious. Like I said, moving on. <laughs> and I listened to the podcast you did with him. And I guess Campbell, unfortunately, did the secondary measurements like right after the refeed was done. So we don't know if the lean body mass retention was glycogen and water. Like this is always an issue with these kind of things. And I don't recall if he found that, that there was a meaningful impact on uh, any component of energy expenditure. So that, that I think has been kind of the long, the long and the short of the debate over refeeds. A, how long do they need to be to be meaningful? B, do they have a quantitatively enough, quantitatively large enough effect to care? C, and I think this was another question that came up when you were discussing this with Dave, was for all we know, the next day you're right back where you, to where you started, right? For all you know, you go right back to where you were and you've basically accomplished, you know, kind of, kind of jack squat nothing. And to my knowledge, nobody has really measured this. And I realized that it would be probably expensive. I don't think it would be technically difficult, right? All you got to do is resting energy, resting metabolic rate, couple weeks of dieting, couple days of refeed, couple more days of dieting, just to see what happens. And I realize there's more energy expenditure than just resting metabolic rate, but at least that would give us some indication. Um, however, I do think, and again, I think you brought this up with Dave, and I believe this was in reference to a previous podcast you'd done with Menno, is, okay, what can we derive from the intermittent, the ICR data or the ADF data, the intermittent calorie restriction or the alternate day fasting? Because in a vague sense, and this gets into the semantics of it, right? So alternate day fasting, you alternate as one day at like 20, I think it's 25% of maintenance calories as one meal. And then they allow the subjects to quote unquote eat normally. And when they've done the work, at least as I remember it, they typically eat anywhere from five to 10% below maintenance to five to 10% above. I believe that's what the alternate day fasting has generally found to be the case. And what you see is that over the course of seven days, right, you do four fasting days and three or reverse or whatever, like there's still fat loss, there's lean body mass retention. And again, this is obese individuals. I know this doesn't necessarily carry over to lean athletes. They find that fat loss is effective. I don't recall if any have measured energy expenditure per se. And then what they, of course, conclude, because again, they can they compare that to a straight deficit, right? And they, they equate the deficit. And, and the same thing with the intermittent caloric, calorie restriction. There you're dieting two to three days in a row, and then you have a quote-unquote maintenance day. You diet a couple more days. They set it up and like so that the weekly net deficit is the same. And the fat loss is invariably the same. The researchers conclude, well, ICR and ADF have no inherent advantage over straight caloric restriction, and they don't in a physiological sense. They, in the sense of, of course, you don't lose more body fat. It's a deficit thing. The lean body mass issue can be, we've got the issue of muscle and glycogen. I might debate that one in obese individuals. Not a big issue. Come back to athletes in a second. I might argue, okay, but what about from an inherent standpoint, right? It's a hell of a lot easier to diet for two or three days kind of hard, and then now you can quote-unquote eat normally, than having to diet seven days in a row, 14 days in a row, six months in a row without a break. So, it, and I know, I mean, dropout rates in these studies are always depressingly staggering, and I don't recall offhand if, if ICR-ADF shows proportionally more dropouts, 
conceptually, I think, like I said, okay, I'm going to tell somebody, you got it at the next four weeks straight. That's miserable. I don't like it any more than you do. Okay, you've only got to diet for six days, then we'll give you one day of maintenance, like your refeed. Or, and that's easier, right? It's like training seven days a week versus six days a week. Six days a week is six on one off. Seven days a week is with no break at what, it's just psychologically impossible. Anybody can diet for three days. Anybody can diet hard for three days, knowing that one day a week they can eat main. So I would anticipate that for at least some people, that type of pattern might be beneficial. Now again, you can't necessarily, however, I also would argue that that's gonna be better in a general sense for an athlete, right? The general public is not worrying about performance. They're not necessarily working, worrying much about lean body mass, even if they should be, but the, the, the very overfed individual doesn't lose enough muscle for it to matter. Athletes have to worry about cratering performance, loss of lean body mass, everything else. There's always been a logic to coordinating your diet and your training, right? Carb cycling has been around since before I was in the field. This got formalized, you know, into Dan Duchesne's body opus, anabolic diet, what I wrote, inflexible dieting 16 years ago. Refeeds became sort of a structured form of this. But it even the idea of acutely on a diet day putting more calories around training, that's always made sense. Support the training, that's important for performance athlete. So in that sense, I could see an ADF pattern, and I think this is kind of what Martin Birkin did with lean gains back in the day, right? If you're lifting Monday, Wednesday, Friday, well, don't diet on the training days. Diet a little harder on the diet on the in-between days, and then eat closer to maintenance with your calories around your training to support the training. There is an inherent logic to that that I don't think can be, again, this from a performance standpoint now. We still have a debate. Does this meaningfully impact on the drop in metabolic rate, the adaptations that occur? Don't think we have good data on that for acute refeeds outside of one paper I do want. One paper on women, actually, that I do want to mention, but I'll let you talk for a second. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, just, <laughs> uh, no, just now when I wanted to interject something, and that is... Um, on the performance side of things, uh, what you mentioned about kind of alternating higher and lower calorie days based on when your training days are, that's something that always made sense to me as well. How big the effect is, of course, we can debate, but that at least mechanistically, I could see how it makes sense. Uh, what I'm curious about is what you think of what some people say, and maybe I've even heard you say this, that one benefit of refeeds or diet breaks might be to temporarily at least elevate training performance. But what I always wonder there is like how large is the carryover of that to longer time periods? Because yeah, you might have a couple of good training days, but if you then go right back to where you were, then did you really gain anything out of that? You know? Well, but I'm not I'm not saying that the goal is necessarily to get stronger or better during this phase. But if you're a performance athlete, any loss in performance is a negative, period. I mean, like, I don't, to me, I don't even see how that's particularly debatable. That even to say, well, you only had a couple of good training days, that's still having, that's still better than having all bad training days. Um, it's, it's far, you know, it, uh, even on top of any adaptational benefits in terms of being able to eat more and being slightly more anabolic. Preventing per performance loss in a performance athlete is critical, and I would even argue, and we're not gonna, we don't have time for this debate over you know maintenance training for for muscle maintenance. But if you're not able to maintain the weight on the bar in the long term, you'd start to lose muscle. So to me, I don't even see how you can how that argument can be made. 
in the sense of, yeah, fine, it's only a couple training days. That's still better than having nothing but crappy training days. Yeah, of course. I just meant like, um, for example, let's say you diet for, you know, two weeks, then you take a couple of days at maintenance or something to give, give yourself a break. Um, or are you just going to be back right to where you were after you had the high days? Or will it have a larger carryover? I, I, th I think it depends on uh, an almost an, an impossible number of factors. And I know that that's a super duper cop out. Is it, again, are we looking at a moderate deficit? If, if you're only on you know 10% calories, you may not see a drop again for a while because it's such a tiny deficit. Most people don't do that. Even at 20%, who knows? Does all this stop mattering if you simply start cycling your calories day on, day off? Probably so. That'll maintain your performance you know, really long term. Are you trying to maintain full volume? Are you cutting your volume by some amount to, you know, something that I've advocated for for absolute years to that during a long time, you know, during dieting, you eventually have to cut your training volume. You're better off doing lo a lower volume of higher quality training than doing a ton of volume that's all crap. And I realize that's no longer in vogue, but, you know, those folks saying you need to increase volume when you're dieting can be wrong just like everybody else can be wrong and they'll see that I'm right uh, eventually. Anyway, so I think it depends. I don't think you can really answer that. I just don't think it matters. I think that having, if you can bump your performance back up to where it was even once a week, that's still better than having an entire week 10% below because that will eventually lead to long-term fitness loss. If you cannot maintain your intensity where it was, you will lose fitness. So to me, it doesn't even matter what the what the the quantitative magnitude is. Anything that that even like I said, because we even know that like in the weight room, if you train your if you train, you can train once a week during maintenance. On a diet, I don't, I don't like you once a week is fine. It's not my favorite frequency, and that's a whole separate thing. But if you can have one hard workout per week, you can maintain your strength and probably your size for pretty extended periods. So long as you maintain intensity and all the maintenance, all the tapering data, all like it all supports that intensity is the key. If you are not able to maintain weight on the bar over time because your performance is cratering, that will lead to muscle loss because you have removed the tension stimulus that the muscle needs. So even being able to maintain that single workout per week per muscle group in the long term will pay dividends because eventually the diet's going to be over. And yes, again, who are we again? Who are we talking about? Physique athletes, eh, performance, who gives a crap? They have to maintain muscle mass. I still think it's important. Many performance athletes diet to get in shape for their competition season. Endurance athletes have very long competition seasons. Powerlifters may be doing it or Olympic lifters for a single meet. Anything they lose when they're having to diet, they have to have on competition day. And depending on how they diet, how long and when and yada, yada, yada. Like anything a performance athlete loses is going to be a negative if they're dieting into competition season. Again, physique, not performance-based. Do whatever it takes to, to prevent muscle loss. But I still do think in the aggregate, even a couple of decent training days every couple of weeks or having a, a week of improved training to regain anything you lost, right? So let's say you're doing the way I approach dieting. You reduce your training volume, you maintain intensity. Fine, volume, primary driver, hypertrophy, it's not, neither here nor there. During those two weeks, you can bring your volume back up to where it was. Anything you might have lost will be regained. Then you move back into maintenance and hopefully you can hold, you'll be able to hold on to it till it starts to lose again and then you do another diet break. So to me, I, I just don't personally 
Um, you know, and again, obviously, if you diet properly, a lot of this is minimized. But I think providing sufficient calories on heavy training days, to me, that's part of dieting properly, for whatever that's worth. Okay, so um, another thing there, which you sort of hinted at, is how much of this do you think is um, kind of mediated by altering the overall deficit? So, for example, let's say you have a whatever twenty percent deficit one day a week. Let's say you have a refeed. The next day, glycogen levels are are loaded, and you get better training performance. How much do you think you could achieve the same result if you had? only a 15% deficit or a 10% deficit on all weeks and it would be equated. And maybe then you could actually have more slightly better training days than you're having now uh, versus just having that one better day. How, how, how do you think this would play out? Yeah. Oh, no. I, yeah. No, I think, I think absolutely. I think there's absolutely going to be a relationship between the size of the deficit and how much any of this is impacted, right? And we, you can, um, there hasn't been, unfortunately, enough comparative data, but you certainly see that in, you know, in terms of like the metabolic adaptations. But so, yeah, at a 10% deficit, A, I would program a refeed far less frequently because it's just not needed. Right. If you if you start looking at like the net calorie deficit. Right. So like let's just let's say you got someone with 2000 calorie maintenance is 2000 because it's the only way I can do the math in my head. 10 percent deficit is 200 calories a day, 1400 calories a week. 20 percent deficit, 400 calories. That'll be double 2800 calories a week. Let's say they go big. Let's say they go protein sparing modified fast thousand calorie deficit, 7000 calories per week. Right. So you've got. 1,400, 2,800, 7,000. In the sense that leptin is responsive to calorie intake and fat loss. Fat loss will be faster with a bigger deficit. I would anticipate the very large calorie deficit individual very much needing a refeed, far more frequent, right? Their carbs are going to be much lower. Again, it depends on what to do with their training volume, right? The 20% the, the deficit might need a refeed day or two twice as frequently as a 10% day. They're going to be getting a bigger hits of performance, but they're also losing fat twice as fast, generally, you know, in the, in the aggregate. And that's the trade-off. How many people are willing to do a 10% de daily deficit? 1,400 calories, you know, less than a pound every two weeks. Yeah, if you're a lean physique athlete, that might be valid, especially towards the end of a diet. But most you know, that just extends the diet. And at least some people, usually power, like performance athletes, seem to report that their performance is hurt more by longer, smaller deficits than shorter, more extreme deficits. Of course, they can adjust their training more easily, right? They often just want to do like four weeks hard and let performance maintain because then they can eat normally while they're back to intensive training, right? Again, performance athletes physique athletes it's not performance oriented outside of training quality being important for muscle mass retention so yeah i absolutely think it would depend on that the 10 percent deficit guy unless they're super lean they might only need to raise calories one day every couple of weeks or two days every couple of weeks 20 percent guy probably once a week the thousand calorie deficit guy might be even more frequently or whatever. I mean, again, what, what's their initial body fat percentage? What's their training? You know, speaking roughly. So yeah, I do think it might balance out in terms of how often the refeed or how useful it is, but that's contrasted against doubling your dieting time. Right. Right. Um, so then if we just, uh, speak about what you would like, what your overall stance is in terms of 
how beneficial these kind of cyclical approaches to dieting versus just uh, having an overall slower approach. So let's say, I don't know, one guy is creating a weekly deficit of 7,000, has one refeed a week, which is maybe in a 1,000 calorie surplus. So the calorie deficit is reduced by, I don't know, 2,000 calories in total. So that's only a 5,000 calorie deficit per week. And then we have another guy who is just dieting slower. So his deficit is only 5,000 to begin with. Um, if we look at it on, in the long term, and let's say the slower deficit guy is not doing any refeeds for, say, I don't know, four weeks or eight weeks. In the long term, would you expect better outcomes in the guy who is doing the refeeds? Overall, kind of calorie deficit under the curve, you know, equated? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's honestly the best answer I can give. Like, I, somebody, I, there's a study I cannot find a damn thing for the life of me years ago that I swear to God used some sort of alternate daily fasting also calorie alteration and actually found that leptin didn't fall over some fairly extended time. I have not been able to find that for over a decade, possibly longer. I will be the first to admit that I may have dreamt it because it wouldn't be the first time <laughs> that I've made up a study in my head that didn't actually exist. I've looked. I've looked for years and I cannot, I would have sworn I saw it. If anybody has seen it, please, 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 please send it to me. Um, because I think that's, I think that's the other question we have to face here. And so we know that, that leptin is really the coordinator of all of this, right? When I, when I got into leptin and this would have been late nineties, early two thousands, it, it was the final center puzzle piece of a problem I'd been working on for like a decade. What, we know that all these things happen during dieting. There's this coordinated adaptation, but why? I mean, outside of because you're dieting. And leptin was the centerpiece of that puzzle because we know absolutely, almost without argument, that falling leptin is the coordinated signal to the adaptations to starvation or dieting. Again, dieting is just starvation on a longer time scale because you're eating. So, and we know, for example, uh, I forget his name, one research group, dieted people down to 10% below maintenance, whatever, thyroid went down, metabolic rate, same old thing, fat loss slowed, injected them with leptin, took them back up to pre-diet levels, about 75% of it reversed. We know that leptin is the key. Even in amenorrhea, men lose their menstrual cycle due to eating insufficient calories, leptin can reverse that. We know that leptin is the key. So in premise... Right, so let's go back to that stupid evolutionary nonsense I babbled about. Start dieting on a Monday. Leptin is at 100%. By day seven, it'll be at 50%. Somewhere on day four, you know, the body starts to sense that adaptation. And in the short term, for listeners so they're clear, the short term leptin responds to calorie and especially carbohydrate intake. In the long term, it responds to fat loss, right? There's a very much a, 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 a dual, dual time course on this. That's why we know we can raise leptin with three days of high carbs without gaining any body fat doesn't have to go up. It's just carb metabolism. Well, what if every third day we ate at maintenance or even slightly above, which we know will bump leptin back up? Well, now it's descending from a, a higher level over the next two or three days of dieting. And we bump it up again. Will that not prevent? You, there's no way to completely stop the metabolic adaptations to dieting. It can't be done. Eventually, just the, the loss of body fat. Will that slow? the metabolic adaptations. My gut says yes, but my gut doesn't matter. Somebody needs to study this. Like, is it, which part of it? Is it only when leptin drops below a certain absolute level? There's some indirect evidence on this in women 
with amenorrhea, even though body fat percentage is not really the critical driver, it is permissive. You only generally see this in women below a certain body fat level, and it is when leptin from memory gets below a certain level. So is there an absolute value below which, right? Say lean guy, 10 nanograms per deciliter of leptin, whatever the units are. Maybe if we can keep it above seven for some period of time, will that prevent the adaptations or at least slow them down? My gut says yes, I would like to see data, I'll be happy to be wrong. But until that point, a lot of this is us arguing back and forth, or sorry, debating and discussing back and forth. We're getting, you know, something that there's just not really good data on, not not acutely. And, and the full diet break stuff is different, which is why I've been focusing really on the leptin, on the, the acute refeeds, because I do think they need to be considered differently. But in the refeed sense, metabolically, maybe. I think, you know, the performance thing is a big part of it. I do know years ago when we discussed this with Eric, right, we talked about the water retention thing that can occur in, in hardcore dieters, and his experience was that having a maintenance day often enough seemed to prevent that, and we know that there are hormonal factors. Low leptin allows cortisol to go up. Leptin inhibits CRH directly. So leptin goes down, CRH goes up, cortisol goes up. That can cause water retention. In women, where cortisol can be even more damaging, even taking a day off and raising count, that will rate that will reduce cortisol levels. This has even even if there's no metabolic advantage, there are acute hormonal advantages or potential advantages that I do think play a role here, and something we might consider in terms of the no, the frequency of refeeding or the sorry the duration of refeeding. And this is again something I want to see studied. Let's say doing a weekly diet, you set up a moderate deficit. 20% of maintenance, right? Achieving, you're aiming for just under a pound of fat. Is there a difference between dieting for five days and eating at maintenance for two, right? A typical cyclical structure. Is there a difference between that, dieting for two or three days, having a maintenance day, dieting for two days, maintenance day, diet, right? Does it matter? I, I don't know. I can probably make arguments. I suspect it probably is a wash, right? If you split them up, leptin drops for three days and you bump it back up, and then it's falling from a higher level. If you eat at maintenance for two days, you're probably going to bump it higher than when one day, and then it's falling from an even higher level. I suspect it's a wash. Haven't made up my mind yet. I want to see. Some, I want somebody to study it. I just do, so that we can answer this once and for all. Like I said, I'll be happy to be wrong. Um, so yeah, my conclusion on the refeeds from a metabolic physiological standpoint. Metabolically, meh, maybe. Physiologically, I think there are advantages. I don't know if you want to talk about behavioral stuff because I think that's the other factor that needs to be addressed here is its potential to positively or negatively impact the overall dieting process in a, in a uh, adherence from an adherence point of view. Hey guys, just a 20 second interruption. If you're interested in working together with me and having me in your corner as a coach for your fat loss and muscle building goals, you can read up on the services I offer at ablessd.com or you can email me on the address in the show description. That's it. Let's continue with the show. Yeah, uh, let's let's get into that just in a second. But um, you mentioned that you consider diet breaks to be a, a different animal. So from that, I would assume that you're more optimistic or, or more confident about the benefits of those. Very much so. And actually, hang on, before I, I forgot, something I did want to bring up that is at least indirect and is very indirect evidence. So there's been a big question about, you know, women in the loss of menstrual cycle, right? It's been an issue for a few decades. We now know really what's driving it. Anne Lukes has done a billion studies looking at low energy availability, 
which you can think of as it's calorie intake minus exercise energy expenditure normalized to lean body mass. It's the number of calories left over after exercise is, is dealt with. And what she showed is that in women, when energy availability falls below a certain point, there are stereotypical adaptations. Decrease in luteinizing hormone pulsatility, decrease in uh, thyroid hormones, energy expenditure, basically looks very much, I mean, it's just like starvation. It's just like dieting. It's the same set of adaptations. Now, all of her studies are short-term. I'll make that very clear. Five days, meticulously controlled. Now, in animals, it had been shown, I forget it was rats or primates, that one day of high-calorie overfeeding could reverse those hormonal changes. Now, we know that animals are not a great model for humans, especially rats and mice. Primates are closer, but rats and mice are a terrible model for humans. And so she did five, her typical five days of low energy availability, very hard deficit. It was like 5,000 calories. It was a pretty big deficit. I forget the numbers. Then she did an absurd overfeeding for one day. It was like 6,400 calories. It was like triple maintenance. It was something absolutely stupid. And she saw no change in hormones. Luteinizing hormone post-totally did not recover. No change. Aha! Boom. One day doesn't work. Or at least one day every five days doesn't work. Well, another researcher did a very similar study looking at very similar things. They did complete fasting for three days. And when I mathed it out, the daily, the, the net deficit in both was about the same. The fasting study showed the exact same hormonal changes, drop in luteinizing hormone, yada, yada, yada. Then, for no deliberate reason, they raised calories back to maintenance for two days. And someone decided, let's remeasure hormones. And they had recovered. So putting those two together, one ridiculous day of overfeeding every five days doesn't seem to do anything. Two days at maintenance after an equally large deficit at least acutely reversed those adaptations. Now, what would have happened if they'd gone right back to starving? Don't know. That'd be the great follow-up, but it'll probably never be done. So I do think that certainly, and these were in, you know, average body fat percentage women, not lean, not, extra, not carrying excess body fat. I think that at least points to the fact that one day, except maybe very early in a diet on a very small deficit, probably doesn't have a big metabolic effect. It's just not probably doing what we wish it would. Now, one, one day every three or four might, because leptin's not, the, the body's not adapting as much by that point. Two days every three to five, very well might. And these were maintenance days. Well, the, the second study was just at maintenance. The first day was at triple maintenance. Um, you know, I, I just, I do think it points out, you know, the old, the old idea of the cheat date, as much as you can for 24 hours, eh, it's not going to do anything. Probably has to be at least two maintenance days a week um, to even have the potential to have an effect. But that brings us back to ADF patterns, ICR patterns with athletes. Fine, just do three days at maintenance and compress your deficit into the four other days. Boom, problem solved. Got four bigger diet days. Every other day you get to eat at maintenance, support your training. Maybe it slows some of this down a little bit, prevents water retention, stay full. Body physique athletes hate it when they're all stringy and small. Um, which is what happens when they get glycogen depleted. They look skinny fat because their muscles are all depleted. Um, yeah, boom, problem solved from a from that standpoint. Oh, yeah, actually, uh, since you mentioned ADF now, um, one thing I wanted to ask your opinion about, and this is something that Menno mentioned when I talked to him, is 
he basically does the reverse approach to refeeds, which is you're keeping your calories as high as possible throughout the week on most days. And then you're cramming your deficit or as much of your deficit as possible into as few of days as possible, basically. So you might eat, I don't know, instead of eating 2000 calories, seven days a week, you might be eating 2,500 five days a week and then as little as possible on two days a week. What do you think of that approach? Because that, that actually fares pretty well if we think about the kind of chronic signaling to your body and then what you do occasionally matters less, right? Sure. And, you know, and I, I'll be honest, you know, I think some of this, I, I personally think calling that the reverse of a refeed, I don't necessarily think that's, that's accurate. But to be honest, this isn't new. Um, I have the advantage of being very <laughs> old. Advantage. I am very old. I've been in this, not only been in this industry forever, but I was before the internet. So I, I, I was able to get exposed to some of the early ideas that aren't, Fred Hatfield was advocating for reverse cyclical dieting in at least the 80s, if not earlier. And the goal was not even necessarily to lose fat so much as to support training during the week and stave off fat gain. Because in, in a very real way, that's just as important, right? And, that, and that's like we can get, again, we can, we can get into semantics. Like how are you defining progress? If you're dieting, if you have higher calorie days on training days, even avoiding performance loss, I see as a benefit. Now, no, you're not getting any stronger. You're not getting any better. And actually, a paper came out literally today looking at that. Did I already? Did I just, oh, no, there it is. Like literally today. <laughs> the influence, or it was just, or I saw it today. The influence of cyclical ketogenic reduction diet versus nutritionally balanced reduction diet on body comp, strength, endurance, performance. And they did... My, what I wrote is the CKD so many years ago versus, and what they found was that in the nutritionally balanced diet, people did make performance gains. These were one year of training. In the CKD, they didn't lose anything, but they didn't gain anything. Although they also didn't describe the training, so I don't know what to make of any of this. Like, they, they didn't describe the workout beyond it was individualized. Okay, fantastic. Anyway, so, so avoiding fat gain can almost be as beneficial. And I realize I don't think that's exactly what Menno is doing. Menno is you know, saying, okay, eat at maintenance for five days and then have two monster deficit days. Well, that's the old 5-2 diet. That was studied years ago. And that's all he, you know, that's all he's doing there. And yeah, there's absolutely some, some logic to that, right? Uh, what, what we're basically looking at is sort of like, as I see it, three different extremes. And I know, again, I believe Eric does it this way too, right? Because I know he, he, or at least did, you know, early in the physique diet, right? We're looking at six months of dieting, eh, one day of refeeds, not that lean, not dieting that hard, performance isn't tanking. So you get leaner, two refeed days. So you get even leaner, you might have three. However, to maintain the weekly deficit, that means that the individual deficit days have to be bigger, which is, ex and so, so we've got three extremes. We've got chronic calorie restriction, 20% off seven days a week, no break in sight. The other extreme, you've got what Menno is describing, eat presumably at maintenance during the five days of the week, maybe a little bit higher, sport training, maybe, and then have monster deficits two days a week. Because if you look at like what you can achieve with a protein sparing modified fast, if you look at alternate fasting studies, they're using like 25% of maintenance calories, which I think is too low for athletes unless it was all protein and even then it's close. And you end up with like the same net weekly. And then in the middle, you've got a happy balance rather than zero refeeds and seven moderate deficit days rather than two extremely diet days 
you've got four moderate diet days and three maintenance days. I, I think we can argue across one another for weeks about which is better for any given individual in any given situation. Like certainly, and I believe this is, again, I listened to your, your podcast with, with, uh, with Dave, you know, for many people, it's way easier to just be, to suffer for two days than to diet moderate. Dieting moderately sucks because you're only, you're eating kind of less than you're used to. It's like, eh, you know, I could still, if you want to, if it fits your macros, I could have a couple cookies, but I don't want a couple of cookies. I want all the cookies. If you can't have any cookies, it's real easy to not have any cookies. And then on the other days, you can have all the cookies. Like, that's part of why cyclical dieting, cyclical keto worked well for me, especially, and for many people. Having some of the carbs sucks. Having none of the carbs is easy. Having all of the carbs is easier. As much as anything, it was behavioral. Let's take out the trigger foods. Let's just give people a bright line boundary, no carbs, because then there's no question about it. You don't get to have that first little bit that makes you want more. And there's certainly much, there's a great deal of logic to that. Also, with only two hard days of dieting, hunger frequently won't kick in. Hunger usually kicks in about day three or four. We know that even under complete fasting conditions, metabolic rate typically goes up on day three or four, right? It doesn't start to really go down in the short term. SNS output increases to mobilize fuel. This idea that dieting for, for one day will crater your metabolism is just old BS that needs to die. So yeah, there is, but then again, if you're alternating every other day, hard deficit maintenance day, six one half dozen the other, I think it comes down to what people prefer you know, situational. One of my consults, actually, I kind of gave advice very similar to what we just talked about because of, without getting into the details, during the week, they were very able to stick to their diet. On the weekends, they weren't. And across two days, if they ate in an uncontrolled fashion, they'd offset their difference and said, cool, just make Sunday an, an alternate day fasting day. Have the one meal whatever, so that it ends up being a low enough calorie day, problem solved. So I, I, I just genuinely think once you get past out of the straight calorie restriction approach, we're just looking at variations on a theme. How often are you training a week? I know Menno tends to be very high frequency. You know, obviously the alternate day stuff doesn't work real well if you're training five days a week because you've still got training falling on two diet days. Martin was a big fan of three days a week weight training. I recommend people move to maintenance and cut their frequency because training too frequently on a diet tends to blow people out in the long term. You know, if you're doing, even in the same vein, right, I know people that like my, my rapid fat loss diet, my Ants Protein Sparing Modified Fast, they would rather suffer for two weeks a lot and be done than kind of suffer for three times as long. Also, they can get back to normal training more quickly, right? The, the whole mini cut idea. So we're looking at sort of this continuum that are all sharing, I think, very similar concepts that once you get out of the straight calorie restriction model, it's just a matter of how it gets implemented. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I think the conclusion there is someone needs to study this properly. Deficit equated, timeframes equated, and then we will have uh, good answers. Yep. And honestly, and honestly, you wouldn't even have to do it acutely, right? Do this for eight weeks and just measure it. Measure pre-diet metabolic rate and post-diet. 
And if they come in, you know, at the same fat loss over that time period, maybe the, the only advantages are possibly psychologically, possibly behavioral, possibly supporting training. And if one group ends up that, oh, hey, their adaptive component was smaller, well, you know, at least we'll have some sort of an answer. And that's the end of part one. All right, guys, thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And once again, if based on what you've heard from me, if you've been following my work for a while, you would be interested in working together with me, having me as a coach and someone who would guide you through to achieve your muscle building and fat loss goals, then you can read up on my services at ablessd.com. You can email me at the address that is linked in the show description and if you just enjoy listening to these episodes then i would really appreciate you dropping a five-star rating on the sustainable self-development podcast on itunes that will be actually beneficial for everybody because i will be able to get more high quality guests on the podcast and that will be fun for you it will be fun for me so please do this a little bit of favor for me so that would be pretty much it thank you for hanging around up until now and we will hear each other in the next episode